Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Citizens. Welcome back from Coachella. Uh, for those of you who were there, no judgment here. Um, so good to see everyone, especially if you're new or visiting for the first time. I really want to welcome you uh, to Citizens. Again, I know uh, Sunday services can get a little bit um, overwhelming and tight in here, but we would love to get to know you and help you get uh, plugged into our community, answer any questions that you have. So um, like Esther said, we have staff, volunteers. Uh, you'll see them with big um, lanyards. Uh, we're usually hanging out around the info canopy after service. Uh, so please come talk to us and let us know how we can uh, support you uh, on your journey of faith. Um, well, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's word. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 to 22. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. Um, I know if, uh, you know, we've been in a series in the book of Acts, and sometimes if you come in the middle of a series through a book in the Bible, you can feel a little bit um, disoriented. So hopefully each week I can give us a little bit of a review of where we've been, but um, you can also listen to all the sermons um, on our podcast as well. So Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. This is the reading of God's word. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges." As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we dive into God's word. 
Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you open our ears and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, again, uh, just to uh, review, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and we're learning what it means to be a spirit-filled church by looking at the first church. Okay, and just to review where we've been, in Acts 1, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and uh, after his resurrection, and he gives his small ragtag group of followers this singular mission. He says, I want you to go be my witnesses, go be living testimonies of who I am and what I've done in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's a lot to ask these ordinary people who've just experienced a traumatic moment in their lives. That's a lot to ask these people for uh, people who are still figuring out themselves, who are trying to understand what all of this means. But Jesus says, don't worry, you're going to have everything you need to carry out this mission when the Holy Spirit comes. And in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what happens at Pentecost. You have 120 Jesus followers. Uh, that's less than the number of people gathered in this auditorium today, but you have 120 Jesus followers in a room gathered together. The Holy Spirit shows up and the church is born. And I think it's very interesting that when the Holy Spirit shows up in Acts 2, the people saw what looked like tongues of fire come to rest on each of the believers. And I always wondered why God throughout the Bible likes to reveal himself to his people as fire. He could have come down and, and encountered his people in many different ways, but he chooses fire. In Exodus 3, he chooses to encounter Moses at the burning bush. Then we read about the pillar of smoke that led the Israelites through the wilderness. We read about the fire coming down on Mount Sinai. In Hebrews 12, God, Paul refers to God as a consuming fire. Why does God choose fire as the primary metaphor by which he reveals himself? And on one hand, I thought maybe it's because fire provides light and warmth and heat, all these things we need for survival. But I wonder, could it also be that God reveals himself as fire because we all know that there's something about fire that is inherently dangerous? You cannot touch fire and not be burned. You cannot have a real encounter with the living God and not be changed. And this is what happens in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit descends. People start speaking in different tongues. Everyone watching is in awe, and the atmosphere is different because the Lord is there. And in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, we witness the first miracle in the early church, proof that what Jesus promised was true, that the power of the Holy Spirit was now living inside every believer. Right? So things are just happening fast and furious. Holy Spirit comes down. Miraculous things start happening. Signs and wonders start happening. Peter and John walk up to this guy who's been lame his entire life. They're walking in on an ordinary day for, to the temple for prayer. They see this man begging at the temple gate who's been crippled from birth. Peter walks up and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he pulls this man up by the arms, and all of a sudden his legs grow strong. And this man, who just a moment ago could not walk, is now jumping inside the temple. Now you have to imagine, if you're a part of this first church and you're watching all of this stuff happen, I mean, the church is growing. In Acts 2, we read that the church went from 120 people to 3,000 pretty much overnight. 
You're seeing signs and wonders. You're seeing this man you've seen every day of your life walking into the temple, healed miraculously. I mean, I'm thinking, that's a church I want to be a part of. Like something beautiful is happening, sign me up. Where's the newcomer's table? Sign me up, right? I want to be a part of this church. And then Acts 4 happens, which is the passage we read today. Right after the first miracle, Luke records the first instance of persecution. And I think it's very interesting that anytime something miraculous seems to happen in Scripture, it's almost always followed by some kind of resistance. Right after the Israelites are freed from 400 years of slavery, they don't go straight into the promised land. They go into the wilderness, wandering around for 40 years. Right after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends like a dove and says, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Right after that, we read that the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right after the birth of the church in Acts 2, you get the first persecution of the church in Acts 4. As the great modern-day philosopher Denzel Washington said, the devil comes for you at your highest moment. And isn't that so true? The devil comes for you at your highest moment. So many people these days have been coming up to me telling me, man, I hear Citizens is growing. I hear some amazing things are happening. I'm like, don't say that. Because that means winter's coming. You know, that means the devil's coming. And I hate thinking about life like that. I, thinking, I hate thinking like that. But I realize for a lot of us, we want Pentecost, but we don't want persecution. We want the anointing, but we don't want the adversity. We want God to heal us. We don't want God to humble us. We want revival without resistance. But if what the Bible says is true, then obedience always comes with opposition. Always. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some, all. Now, for those of us who live here in America, it goes without saying that we're blessed to not have to deal with the kind of persecution faced by so many believers around the world. Okay, and, and just to let you know, like someone saying something mean about you on Twitter, that's not persecution. Okay, there at this very moment, there are believers around the world beheaded for their faith, being executed for their faith, risking their lives every time they get together for a Bible study, every time they gather together with other believers. And you and I, we don't have to face that kind of a reality. And yet the Bible says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Resistance is guaranteed. Put another way, if there is nothing in your life right now that is difficult or challenging because you follow Jesus, then you really have to ask yourself, are you really following him? Let me ask you that question again. If there's nothing in your life right now that is difficult or challenging because you follow Jesus, are you really following him? Like, is there anything in your life right now that only makes sense because you follow Jesus? 
Are there decisions you've made that to everyone else around you look foolish but only make sense to you because you follow Jesus? Is there anything different about the way you raise your kids because you follow Jesus? Is there anything different about the way you speak to people or the way you interact with people at work or the way you use your time, energy, and resources that is markedly different simply because you follow Jesus? Or would your life look exactly the same with or without him? You know, a friend of mine on the East Coast recently got a job offer in a different state from a company that he told me would pay him almost triple his current salary. He's married, he's got a couple young kids, and this job would give his family a completely different standard of living, different lifestyle. He declined the offer, and I asked him why, and he said it's because he wants to stay at his church. And I was like, you're crazy. I'll help you find another church, <laughs> you know. And I was like, uh, and he said everyone around him said he was crazy. And you know what he said? He said, you know, in the grand scheme of things, my family's spiritual health, my family being a part of a community that knows them and loves them, my kids growing up in a place where they're going to be people older than them, constantly pointing them to Jesus, that is more important to me than a bigger paycheck and a bigger home. That was so humbling for me. Because I was like, I mean, that's, it's still triple, though. Triple your salary, you know? Like, double, okay, triple, you know? You see, the way of Jesus flies in the face of everything our culture teaches us to value. Power, wealth, status, self-importance. And so it makes sense that following Jesus is going to come with resistance. This is what we see in Acts 4. In verse 2, and I put it up on the screen. We read that they, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They were greatly disturbed. For those of you who don't know who the Sadducees are, the Sadducees are the, were the ruling class during that period of time. They were people who controlled everything that went on in the temple. They were the who's who of society. They were in with the Roman government. They were people who were all about maintaining the status quo. They loved their power. They loved all the perks that came with that power. And they sought to keep that power at all costs. Now there's something about the resurrection of the dead. There's something about Jesus that is disturbing them. Okay, that word disturb also gets translated offends, pains, troubles. What is it about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead that has these people so offended that they feel the need to arrest Peter and John and then make them stand trial. What is it? And it's this. If the resurrection is true, then it means everything Jesus taught is true. And if everything Jesus taught is true, then it means Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, it means Jesus has the authority to mess with your life. He has the authority to tell you what to do. He has the authority to tell you what to do with your money and your body. He has the authority to tell you to give up some things you've been holding on to. And you see, these Sadducees, they like their comfortable life. 
They like their opulent homes. They like their privilege. They like their power. They like being revered and respected. You know, the past few years have sparked quite a lot of discourse around racism and the marginalization of people of color in spaces and institutions that have historically been predominantly white. And we've seen this in the church, where you have some of the big hallmark denominations in our country experiencing a lot of division and hostility around issues of race and identity, where you have many people of color telling the establishment, look, I do not feel seen. I do not feel heard. I feel overlooked. And the establishment turning around and telling them, it's just in your head. We're colorblind here. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We all love each other. And you realize it's human nature to want to hold on to privilege and power, even if it means denying reality. And this is exactly what we're seeing in Acts 4. Everyone has just seen this lame man get healed in the most miraculous way, and yet the establishment is going to do everything they can to squash anything that might threaten their way of life. Listen to what it says in verses 16 and 17. This is the Sadducees talking. What are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. We can't deny that something incredible has happened to this lame man, but we'd rather keep this under wraps than deal with the implications of what this miracle could mean for us. Nobody's denying that something amazing has happened, but they're like, we can't tell anybody about this because there are too many implications for our power, our privilege, our comforts, if everything they're saying gets out and if everything they're saying is true. You ever have um, like a friend who's like your venting partner uh, for the longest time and, and you both can't stand the same exact person? And so the, the thing you do, like love to do when you get together is just like you just love talking bad about that person. It's like a drug, right? You get together and you're venting to each other and once in a while, one, you know, that friend kind of has like a, an epiphany, right? They, they're like, you know, this is getting toxic because all we do is talk bad about this person. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. How does that make you feel? You're like, ooh, you're like responsible now. You're, you know, turning over a new leaf. It doesn't make you feel good. Or I want you to, you know, have you ever had that friend who was like, your most debaucherous friend, okay, don't look around, okay, your most debaucherous friend, they're unhinged, don't have their life together, right, and, you know, like, they just going out every night, getting wasted every night, not responsible at all, they decide they want to turn it over a new leaf, you know what I hear all the time, like, because, you know, they get, either they get married, they have kids, want to get more serious about their faith, you know, want to change for the better, I hear all the time, man, I miss the old version of that guy. You know, that guy was so much more fun. You know, ooh, he's got to go to sleep early because he has church in the morning. Ooh, right? As if these are bad things. Why do some of us get so worked up when we see another person make real progress? And I would say it's because their progress poses a threat to our way of life. Their progress exposes our brokenness. 
and forces all of us to examine our hearts and our choices and our trajectory. And if we're honest with ourselves, some of us would rather have our friends stay in their old lives if, we, if it means we don't have to change anything about ours. Peter and John have just healed a man that was lame from birth. This man who's been begging outside the temple gate his entire life. It's a miracle that nobody can, can deny, and yet the establishment, they can't handle it. Listen to what Peter says to them in verses 8 to 10. He says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. This is what Peter is saying. He's saying, you realize that y'all are mad right now. What has you guys so furious that you put us in jail right now is that we were kind and that we healed a man who's been lame from birth. And he's saying, you would rather this man stay unhealed than have to reckon with what this healing could mean for your life. In fact, that's exactly why you crucified Jesus. This man who for his entire life only loved, served, and healed people, and yet you hated him so much that you put him on a cross. Because you knew that if Jesus was who he claimed to be, then it would expose you for who you really are, and it would mean that you aren't the master of your life. It would mean that you can't do everything you want to do, and so you would rather kill him than change. You would rather kill the man than change. Now, I want to speak to two groups of people today. First, I want to speak to those of us who profess to follow Jesus. And my guess is that even for those of us who are serving in the church, super involved, we're regular attendees, my guess is that there's still at least one area of your life where you would rather crucify Jesus than change. where you say, okay, Jesus, you can have all these other things, but just not this. Not my kids. Not my money. Not this addiction. Not this grudge I've been holding on to. Not this one family member who I can't stand. You could have everything else, just not that area of my life. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, then it means our entire lives are submitted to his authority. But the second group of people I want to speak to are those of you who are perhaps new to Christianity, who are curious about the faith. I know there are many of us sitting in this room who feel empty, who feel alone, lost. And we know like our current way of life is not doing it for us. We've seen what success feels like. We've seen what popularity feels like. We've, gotten, we've kind of like gotten the things that we've scripted out in our minds as to what a good life looks like, and it's still not doing it for us. And yet I wonder if there's a part of us that's scared to give our lives to Jesus because we know it means we're going to have to change some things. It means we're going to have to forgive some people. It means we're going to have to reorganize our lives. But can I just say something about that? All of us have already organized our lives around something. 
all of us have already built our entire lives and built all of our relationships around what we believe is the ultimate end of our existence. And it's turning us into specific kind of people. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us have organized our lives around things that only make us more empty, more lonely, more discontent. But I'm telling you, Jesus offers us so much, something so much better. He offers us a life of joy, of peace, of satisfaction, of deep contentment. And this is not saying that following Jesus is going to be easy, but nothing good is ever easy. In fact, the metaphor Jesus uses to describe what a life of following him looks like is taking up our cross to follow him. But I love what Jesus says in Matthew 11 when he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Meaning, look, if you follow me, you're still going to have to put on a yoke. You're still going to have to do some things and give up some things and surrender your life to me. But unlike the yokes of this world which will crush you, my yoke is easy and my burden is light because I will carry you every step of the way and I will turn you into the person you want to be, you deeply long to be. You see, the gospel threatens us. And if you feel a little uneasy, that should happen. Because with Pentecost comes persecution. The gospel threatens us, but it also transforms us. You cannot touch fire and not be burned. You cannot spend time with Jesus and not be changed. I think my favorite verse in this entire passage is verse 13. That says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. There is nothing special about Peter and John. They're not extra talented. They're not super popular. They're not very educated. And yet they'd been with Jesus. They were ordinary people walking with an extraordinary God. And because of that, everything changed. Peter, the same guy who once shrunk in fear when a servant girl... A servant girl asked him, do you know Jesus? And he's like, no, I don't know him. I don't know who you're talking about. This is a servant girl. This same guy is now standing before the highest rulers in the land proclaiming the name of Jesus as the only name that saves. What happened? What changed? He'd been with Jesus. That's it. The more we walk with Jesus... The more we walk in his unconditional love for us, the more free we become, the more courageous we become, the more the opinions of others stop bothering us so much, the more we stop caring about what people say about us on Twitter because you realize that the most important being in the universe loves you so much that he was willing to give his life for you. That kind of a love is transformative. Look at what it says in verse 19. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? These guys who used to care so much about what other people thought about them, now they're saying, I don't really care what other people think. 
I don't really care what you think about me because what matters most is what God thinks about me. Do you know what God thinks about you? Do you realize how much God loves you? This God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Do you know how much his heart breaks when he sees you searching for fulfillment and satisfaction in lesser alternatives? He's saying everything you're looking for is found in me. And he's inviting every single one of us this morning to come back home. To let him love you the way you deeply desire to be loved. And when we do that, we will see God begin to transform us in ways we could never imagine. Now that transformation is not going to happen overnight. And it may not even happen the way we want it to. Right? You know what I think is a very interesting detail? The way this passage ends in verse 22, in the last line we read that the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. It's a funny detail to include in the story. If he was 40 years old and begging at the temple every day of his life, you know what I was thinking? I was doing the math. That means Jesus himself was alive with this man. That means Jesus himself was walking into the temple every day looking at this man on the ground and for some reason Jesus didn't heal him. You ever wonder that? Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, he's going to the temple every day. He sees this man all he has to do is heal him with a word, and he doesn't heal him. Why? That's very frustrating. And you realize often when we don't see our circumstances change or ourselves change according to our own timeline, we think God is absent. We think God isn't working when in fact God knows exactly what he's doing and he's waiting for the perfect time to bring himself maximum glory. This lame man who probably assumed he was going to die without ever having his story told, this lame man who thought, well, if Jesus is dead, like there's no way I'm going to be able to walk again, this lame man who thought his story was over, who assumed he would be forgotten and die an insignificant death, is now remembered forever in God's holy word as a testament to God's healing power. It's not always according to our timeline that transformation happens, but God is always working. God is always moving. Maybe you're in a season right now in life or in your journey of faith where you're experiencing resistance or opposition, where life just feels really hard, where following Jesus feels really hard, where loving people in your life feels really hard, and you're wondering, is any of this even worth it? And in these moments of resistance, I'm telling you, the enemy is going to come and try to discourage you and feed you lies about who God is that cause you to cast doubt on God's goodness if God is actually there. I imagine this is exactly what Peter and John are thinking as they get thrown into prison. They perform one miracle. They preach one sermon and they're in jail. And I wonder if they're sitting in the prison cell being like, are we crazy? Is this worth it? Did we make the right decision with our lives? But I love that Luke records this little detail right after he says they were seized and put into prison. In verse 4, this is what Luke says. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. 
Not that numbers really matter, but I just think it's a really subtle detail there, and I think it was Luke's subtle way of saying, even though Peter and John were sitting in a prison cell and they had no idea if their life was coming to anything, they had no idea what God was doing, God was working in the midst of their suffering and persecution, and he was building his church through them. God is moving in your life and in the world in ways you and I cannot see. We cannot even fathom. Some of us that don't see any fruit in our lives that are just, con it feels like we're just trying to survive and get through the day, know that God is working and God is moving in ways you could not see. He's making all things new. He's redeeming all things for his glory and our good. So as we close, may you know that today we stand before a dangerous gospel. It's a gospel that if you get close, you're going to get burned. Will we, like the Sadducees, run from it and choose to stay unhealed and unchanged? Or will we, by faith, receive it and all that this gospel has to offer to us? Let's pray. As our worship team comes up, I want to give us a few moments to respond to this word. And I want to ask this question. What areas of your life are you holding on to very tightly that you know following Jesus threatens that? Where you feel God is saying, give that to me. whether it's anxiety or worry about your future, about marriage, about kids, whether it's someone you need to forgive in your life, but you're just choosing not to. What area of your life does the gospel threaten and is God inviting you to give to him? once you identify that area I want you to take a moment and to let God love you for God to remind you that he's in control of your life that he sees you he sees the pain you're experiencing he sees your anger he sees your sadness he sees your fears, your worries, and he says, I love you. Trust me. I died for you. Trust me. Let's take a moment to let God love you.
Lord, we come humbly before you today. And we confess that sometimes in this culture that we live in, it's so easy to get swept up in the stories and the narratives that our culture feeds us, that the secret to happiness is X, Y, or Z. So many things constantly vying for our attention, so many things hijacking our desires and our affections. But we know, God, that so many of these things are just, they attract us, but in the end, they will kill us. We will find ourselves more empty, alone, lost, confused, scared. And so this morning, I pray that, that you would help us once again to turn our hearts, to fix our gaze on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who loved us at our very worst, who loved us so much that you died. God, help us to live in your love, Lord, we know that following you can be difficult at times and we will face resistance, but we know, God, on the other side of death is resurrection. On the other side of death is new life, is freedom, is joy, is peace that this world cannot understand. So God, empower us with your Holy Spirit that we may learn to live in your love, to live with you. We thank you for this word today. In Jesus' name, amen.